you will, turn with me to Acts 2. I'm going to read verse 37 through 39 and then pray. Look with me at Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you just look down at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We pray. Father, we ask for your Spirit's help as we attend to your word, as we consider once again and really with regard to the mode of administration, as we consider the sacrament, the ordinance of baptism that Christ has given to his church. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word, to rejoice over it, to give thanks above all for Christ, the one who is signified in this. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the missionaries, as you guys know, we're making a series of missionary films, and one of the missionaries about whom we're doing a documentary is Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is the man who brought the gospel to Burma, we call Myanmar now, and did a Bible translation for them, a translation that really is still in use today. If you talk to Burmese Christians today, if you meet them, many of them will say the first person they want to meet in heaven is Jesus, and after that, Adoniram Judson. His story is really marvelously retold in the biography to the Golden Shore. And if you haven't read to the Golden Shore, and I could recommend a biography to you, I would recommend that one. Read it. You will be greatly encouraged. When Adoniram Judson left for Burma, he came from Massachusetts. When he left from Burma, he was a congregationalist. Jonathan Edwards was a congregationalist. A congregationalist is, you know, a lot of people would call now, they'd call a Presbyterian because they tend to confuse the two things. A congregationalist is not a Baptist, but is someone who believes in independent church government. However, still practices the baptism not only of believers, but of their children. He was a congregationalist, so he believed in household baptisms. However, by the time he reached India on the boat, he changed his position. So Adoniram Judson on the journey to India, which is where he was headed at first, and then he was redirected to Burma. By the time he reached India, where William Carey, a very well-known Baptist missionary, and really one of the fathers of, if you will, modern missions, where by the time he reached there, he had become a Baptist. Judson actually wrote a sermon on baptism with two points. I think the sermon's almost 20,000 words. So if you think I preach long sermons, think again. William Carey was quite taken with the sermon. But here are the two points that Judson gave on baptism. The first point was, what is baptism? And the second point was, to whom is baptism to be administered? To whom is it to be administered? In our series, the six-part series I did, I already addressed the question, to whom should it be administered? So I'm not talking about that this evening, to whom should it be administered? But really, I want to interact with his first question, What is baptism? We've already looked at who are the proper parties of the sign of baptism. Now, I want to assert something as we go into this. The Presbyterian and Reformed 
and the 1689, what people are now calling the 1689 Baptists, or the particular Baptists of the 17th century, all held the same view of what baptism is substantially. In fact, in their confessions, they used the same language to define baptism. They all believed that baptism is a sacrament ordained by Jesus Christ that admits the party baptized into the visible church. You're a member of the visible church, therefore you receive the sign of membership of the visible church. They didn't disagree on that. They disagreed on who the proper members of the visible church were. They all believed it was a sign of the covenant of grace, of being united to Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, of giving ourselves up to God through Christ to walk in newness of life. And they all used that language in their confessions. Their primary disagreement was with regard to the application of the sign to the children of believers. With that said, Judson, when he wrote his sermon and said, what is baptism? He didn't really get to the nature of baptism. That's not the question he actually dealt with. When he asked the question, what is baptism? He didn't ask, what is baptism? Oh, it's a sign of the covenant of grace, etc. What he said is, by what is baptism? He was really asking, what's the proper mode of baptism? Or the proper manner in which you administer the water? How are the baptismal waters to be administered? Should someone be immersed underneath them? Should someone have them poured upon them? Should someone be sprinkled? What is the mode or manner in which we should put baptismal water upon someone? That was really the question that he dealt with in his first point. Adonai Judson argued the following. Let me quote him from his sermon. The word which denotes the ordinance of baptism, that word baptizo, and there's some varieties of that, but According to the usage of Greek writers, the word which denotes the ordinance of baptism, according to the usage of Greek writers, uniformly, uniformly signifies or implies immersion. That's the plunging underneath the water. Nor, to go on, he says, has any instance been produced in which the word, literally applied, does not denote immersion or washing by immersion. You hear his claim? Now, in fairness, Judson does admit that there are some figurative uses of the word baptizo that don't mean immerse, but they're figurative. So he says every time it's used literally of the sign, it means immerse, and everybody knows it. He did not believe that it could mean something else. Here's what Adonai Judson goes on to say. Every time we see someone baptized into the faith in the New Testament... It is manifestly obvious, you hear the claim? Manifestly obvious that this was an immersion under the water precisely because, now listen to why, the word means to immerse. Manifestly obvious because the word means to immerse. The question is, is he correct? Is baptism necessarily by the mode or manner of immersion? Now, I want you to hear what the London Baptists said. The London Baptist Confession, 1689, really written in 1677, but due to the Act of Uniformity, became legal in 1689, etc. So, what did they say? Second London Confession, chapter 29, paragraph 4. They say this. Immersion, or dipping of the person in water. Now, notice they make a parallel between those two phrases, to dip and to immerse. They just essentially say they're synonymous. Immersion or the dipping of the person in water, is necessary 
to the due administration of this ordinance. Now, the problem is we don't use 16th, 17th century English any longer, so we tend to use those words a bit differently. When they say it's necessary the due administration of the ordinance, the word due means proper. That's what they're saying. It's necessary the proper administration of the ordinance. Dr. James Renahan, in his commentary on the Second London Confession, argues that quite persuasively, that it means proper. Thus, I want to make it clear that the 1689 Baptists did not believe it is necessary to immerse for the baptism to be valid. They didn't believe it was necessary to do that to, for it to be valid. They thought it was necessary for it to be proper. That's the proper way to do it. They did not believe that if water was sprinkled or poured upon you, then your baptism was invalid and must be done again. They did not believe that. In fact, we have transfer letters from Presbyterian churches to Baptist churches from the 17th century in which they don't require rebaptism because the person wasn't immersed. In fact, originally the Baptists didn't immerse either. That came later. But they believed that not immersing was not proper. They believed it was valid, but irregular or improper. You guys understand the distinction there? That distinction is important. Let me say this. The 1689 Baptists were more concerned with who should be baptized than with how they were baptized. So if you went to a Baptist in the 17th century and said, hey, listen, yes, we baptize our babies, but we do it by dunking them all the way under the water. They wouldn't go, okay, well, we're good then. That's great, right? They were concerned with who you're baptizing more than they were how, though how mattered to them too, just not to the same degree. So as we come to this question of whether immersion is the only valid mode, that's Adoniram Judson's argument. And that is the argument of some American Baptists. When I say American Baptists, I don't mean the denomination that's gone liberal. I mean Baptists in America. Some Baptists in America have argued that immersion is the only valid mode. The only valid mode. That's what Judson believed. So as we come to that, let us keep in mind that the 1689 Baptists did not actually embrace that notion. Thus, here is our question tonight. Is immersion under the water... I'm just going to say that so we're really clear. The only valid or even, to deal with the 17th century Baptists, even the only proper mode of baptism. Is it the only valid or even the only proper mode of baptism? Now, I turn you to Acts 2.38 because we hear in Acts 2.38 the crowds ask at Pentecost, what shall we do to be saved? How do we respond to this? We feel cut to the heart by our sin in the crucifixion of the Messiah. What do we do about this? And the response they hear is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then 3,000 were baptized that day. And the question we want to ask is, what was happening there? In our mind's eye, I know we all imagine something. We imagine something probably because of our own experience. We probably think of 3,000 people being dunked underwater. Was that right? Is that what happened? The text doesn't say. Unless, of course, the word baptizo must mean immerse. Were they poured upon? Were they sprinkled? Now, some scholars argue that it could not be immersion because it's 3,000 people. It's administratively impossible. I think that's a terrible argument. It could be immersion of 3,000 people. I have no idea. 
On the flip side, some scholars will take us to Acts 8. So look there, Acts 8 and verse 36. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The first thing I want you to note, because this comes into the debate, before you look at verse 36, look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now some people want you to remember this is a desert place. And then go to verse 36. Look what it says. And as they were going along the road, remember this desert place, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He's believing the gospel, so shouldn't he be baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. All right. Some scholars say they went down into the water, they came up out of the water, therefore that is necessarily immersion. On the flip side, some scholars say they're in a desert place. There wasn't possibly enough water to be immersed. I think both of those arguments are poor. Both of them are poor. First of all, just because it was a desert place doesn't mean there couldn't have been some kind of body of water or river sufficient to immerse them. That is entirely possible. We just don't know. We can't make an argument on the basis of it's a desert, couldn't have been immersion. That's, I think that's a bad argument. However, to say that because they went down into the water to be baptized and came up out of the water from baptism means it was immersion is also deeply problematic because both Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water and came up out of the water. And we should probably assume that Philip did not fully immerse himself while he fully immersed the Ethiopian eunuch. Because that action is ascribed to both of them. Listen, every time you go into a river, what do you have to do? Or a body of water, you generally walk down into it, and then you emerge by walking up out of it, don't you? Because what's the problem if that place that holds that body of water is the same elevation as the shoreline around it, it won't be held there. You understand how that works? So you walk down and you come back out. My point is not that we have an answer here about immersion. My point is that the problem with these kinds of circumstantial arguments is the text doesn't say enough to prove the point we're trying to make. I have no idea if the eunuch or the 3,000 were immersed based upon reading these texts unless baptizo must mean immersion. Maybe they were immersed, maybe not. Now, Lydia and her household were baptized in a river. They were right next to a river, so they could have been immersed. The Philippian jailer, however, is a little more difficult. Did they leave his house and go to a river to immerse him and his family and come back? I don't know. Further, when John the Baptist was baptizing folks, we see that they were at the River Jordan, don't we? So look at Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5. In a minute, we're going to venture into some Old Testament texts. But let's look here first. Then Jerusalem, so John's out there baptizing. Listen, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, the river Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John the Baptist was baptizing whole crowds in the river Jordan. Further, in John 3.23, we're told the apostles were baptizing in a location where the water was plentiful. Do those texts prove immersion? 
Well, they certainly proved they were at a river and that there was plentiful water. It seems certainly to make immersion possible, maybe even likely. But it doesn't prove what's happened here, again, unless baptizo means immersion. Now look at Matthew 3.16. Matthew 3.16, as Jesus is baptized, what about his baptism? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. So he came up from the river. Does that mean that he came up from underneath the water? Or does it mean that he came up out of the river? I don't know. Now, I have a definite answer if the word baptizo necessarily means immerse. It could be either. You've been to a river. You understand how coming up out of the river could mean you were under the water, or it could mean that you were just in the water and walked out of the river. You came up out of it. So how do we answer the question? Well, here's what we should not do in answering the question. We should not take the mode that we have seen and grown accustomed to, in other words, in our own experience, the mode that we're used to seeing, and then import that into the text of Scripture and just assume it there. We should not do that. We should ask what the Scripture teaches about mode. So here's what I want to do. I want to address that question under three ways, actually, we see mode discussed in the Bible. We see this word baptizo used in the Bible. First, baptism means to dip or to immerse. Second, baptism means to pour. And third, baptism means to sprinkle. So it has three definitions. Yes. So let me prove that rather than just assert it. First, baptism means to dip or immerse. First, I want to argue that the words baptizo, bapto, baptisma, and baptismos are all part of a word family that means to wash, to cleanse, to purify, to dip into liquid. Nearly always, nearly always being used in the scriptures in the context of some kind of ceremonial purification or ritual initiation. The use of the word baptism in the sense of dipping into liquid could indicate immersion into liquid, but it does not necessarily mean immersion. John the Baptist could have dipped Jesus into the water by fully immersing him. Or Jesus walking down into the water and having the water poured or sprinkled on him could accommodate this language as well. Now, it will not do for me just to assert that. I want to make an argument. Let me begin the argument with an observation. When John the Baptist came baptizing, it does not seem that even one person asked, hey, what's baptism? They all came out to be baptized. Israeli crowds went out to be baptized. But they seem to have some knowledge of what baptism is. They did so because baptism exists in the Old Testament, what they would have called the Bible. In at least three cases, the word for baptism clearly means immerse. So we're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In at least three cases, the word for baptism in the Old Testament, Greek, clearly seems to mean immerse. So look at Leviticus 11. I'm going to show you those three briefly. I really don't think there's much disagreement that these must be immersion. 
There's some question about one of these three texts, but this one isn't really debated. Leviticus 11 and verse 32. And anything on which any of them falls, that's talking about the dead swarming things. Anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Whether it's an article of wood or a garment or skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water. And it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. This putting into the water is this word that we talk about from this family of words that are baptism. We just transliterate the word. We don't even translate it and say wash or cleanse. We just tend to use baptize. That's the word that's being used. And this clearly seems to mean to dip in the sense of immersing under the water. Now, 2 Kings 5. Look at 2 Kings 5. You likely know this story, so I won't spend much time on it, but this seems to also clearly point to immersion. 2 Kings 5 and verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He goes down and dips himself. It seems to be that he's fully immersed himself. He Remember, he has a fleshly disease he wants cleansed, if you will. So he goes down and dips himself seven times, which seems to point to a cleansing by an immersion in the water. And this word, again, is the word in the family of the word baptism. Look at Job, the book of Job in chapter 9. This will be obviously immerse. Chapter 9, verse 31 in Job it's again, it's the same Greek word. Yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. That clearly seems to be that plunging into the pit. That is the same word for baptism. It's talking about immersing. You guys understand why if you're plunged into a pit, you're completely under? Okay, clear enough. However, there are also uses that do not mean immerse, but rather to dip and not dipping in the sense of immersing. So what I'm saying is dipping and immersing are not exactly the same thing. So for example, look at Exodus 12:22. You guys know this is the Passover, chapter 12 and verse 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts of the blood that is in the basin. You're taking a bunch of hyssop and you're dipping it in. You're not immersing it underneath the blood. We'll see this again in Leviticus 14. Look at Leviticus 14. And verse 51, and you shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn along with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed and in the fresh water and sprinkle the house seven times. It seems unlikely you were immersing wood and hyssop and a live bird, immersing it under the blood of a dead bird. It seems unlikely. It seems to be dipped and not immersed. But look at Joshua 3. 15. Joshua 3.15 is they're going to cross the Jordan River. Joshua 3.15. You know this. This is a scene that is similar to the Exodus, the, the parting of the Red Sea at the Exodus, and if you will, a smaller fashion. Note the language, verse 15. And as soon as those bearing the ark, they're going to take the ark of the covenant apart. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. That's the same word for baptism. Dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout this time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose in a heap very far away. So their feet were dipped in, 
It's not the idea that they were fully immersed in this water. So what we know is that baptism refers to some kind of ceremonial cleansing or washing. And it could mean immersion fully underwater. Now, do the New Testament writers ever use baptism in the sense of dipping or immersing? Do they ever use it that way? Well, the baptisms performed by John the Baptist, the apostles, and Philip could all be, could all be immersion under the water. They could. But we're not sure based upon those uses. So is there any other New Testament uses of that term? Look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, this being Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They're being asked why they don't wash. The Greek word for wash is the same word from which we get the word baptism. Why don't they baptize their hands before they eat? We baptize the dishes. We baptize the cups. We baptize all this other stuff. Now, did they immerse their hands in water, or did they take water out of a basin from one hand and put it on another hand? And did they immerse the dishes in the water, or did they pour water on them? You You pour water on your dishes, sometimes from a faucet, sometimes you immerse them. What were they doing? We can't just jump to assumptions. They clearly could mean that the disciples were to fully immerse their hands. Could mean that. Though, again, water could have been poured on them. So let's look at how Luke addresses this in a parallel passage. Look at Luke 11. We're going to pick up the use by Luke of this parallel passage. But notice the question is not just about hands. Luke 11 and verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So guess coming to dine. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first get baptized before dinner. You guys just catch that? He was not first baptized before dinner. That's just what it says. Did the Pharisee expect Jesus to be fully immersed in water prior to dinner? Or was he just talking about washing his hands? Based on the parallel passage in Mark, it seems to be that he's talking about washing his hands, yet he can just refer to the washing of hands as, why didn't Jesus get baptized before dinner? I suppose it's possible the Pharisee expected him to fully immerse his body in water prior to dinner. But based on our text in Mark 7, it seems to the question has to do with the washing of hands. So it seems that the use of baptism in the New Testament writings is not always full body immersion. It could be immersion, but it seems unlikely in some cases. Now, thematically, I suppose, it's also possible to argue that the New Testament references baptism as immersion in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, where it says we've been baptized into Christ's death and we were buried with him by baptism. But the point of those texts is not about the manner in which we were immersed into water. The point is that we have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. We were crucified with Christ and resurrected to new life in him by faith. 
Our baptism is a sign of our union with Christ, of our cleansing from sin and new life in him. Now, could Paul be assuming immersion? Perhaps. Perhaps he was. But that is not the point he's arguing for. Further, when Paul refers to the baptism of Moses in 1 Corinthians 10, as Israel crossed the Red Sea, again, the word baptism being used, as Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, does Paul mean that Israel experienced immersion in the Red Sea? Well, the only folks that were immersed in water in that scene were Pharaoh and his armies. The same is true in 1 Peter 3.21 when Peter references that the flood corresponds to baptism, or baptism corresponds to the flood. The wicked of the earth were fully immersed in the water, and Noah and his family were saved through that. My point is that while it's possible that immersion is the form baptism took in the New Testament, it's not clear that it is. Further, it's not clear in the Old Testament nor the New Testament. We can evince some examples that clearly seem to mean immersion, but generally the meaning in the passage we have is to dip or to wash, and to dip or to wash is not always to immerse, though it may be sometimes. Again, let's move to the second way the word baptize is used in the Bible. Second, baptism means to pour. Means to pour. Now, I've already stated that baptism could mean pouring in some of our passages. For example, the pouring of water on someone. Luke 3.16, though. Look there. Let's look at some clear examples where baptism is talking about pouring. Luke 3.16, where the word is used that way. John answers, the people are in anticipation about whether John the Baptist is the Christ. And John answered them all, verse 16 of Luke 3, answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. Now notice the parallel between water baptism and the next baptism. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Same word. Here's the question. Did Jesus immerse people in the Holy Spirit and fire? It's bad to be immersed in fire in the Bible, by the way. Is that what it's talking about? Look at Acts chapter 1. Luke writes both Acts and Luke. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the parallel is between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with water. In Acts 1.8, look at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. By the way, this is picking up on Isaiah 32.15, where the Holy Spirit, in the time of restoration, will be poured out upon you. He'll be poured out upon you. Now look at Acts 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Holy Spirit visibly, we talk about this as the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, Now, we don't obviously mean that the tongues of fire are the Holy Spirit. You understand that? Just like the dove is not the Holy Spirit. Let's be really clear that descends, okay? But the point is that the Holy Spirit visibly manifests his presence in tongues of fire that come upon them, that rest on them, that's poured out on them. 
This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire upon them. The apostles were not immersed in tongues of fire. They had tongues of fire poured out upon them. And Christian baptism is a sign that all those who believe in Christ receive the Holy Spirit, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, giving us life in him, is the promise given to Abraham, the promises which is for us and for our children and for all those who are far off. And we see the Holy Spirit fall upon or being poured out upon people in the book of Acts. As Isaiah prophesied that he'd be poured out upon us from on high, so in Acts 10.44, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his household. That's all called baptism. And it's pouring. In fact, it is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the heads of the apostles that is the context for the command to repent and be baptized and the promise you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So pouring could very likely be what happened in all these baptisms in the New Testament. You went down into the river and someone poured water on you. Let's look at our third option. Baptism means sprinkling. Now, could it possibly mean that? I mean, this pastor comes and sprinkles somebody. Is that really baptism? That just seems weak sauce, right? Could it possibly mean that? Does the word baptism ever refer to sprinkling? Yes, in fact, it does. Where? Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And look at verse 7. Let's talk about the preparations of the holy, of holies, etc. But into the second, only the high priest goes. That's the second section of the holy place of the tabernacle. There's the holy place, if you will. The ESV makes it difficult because they translate holy place as the holy of holies. So I'm just going to say there's the holy place and there's the holy of holy. So when you see it in the ESV and it says holy place, that's holy of holies. Okay. The holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is, behind the curtain, where the priest could only go, only the high priest, once a year. That's what they're referring to here. Now notice what he says. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, baptisms. Various baptisms. Regulations for the body imposed at the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared, so he's going to go on, this is referring to the washings or baptisms that take place on the Day of Atonement. And these washings or baptisms on the Day of Atonement are accomplished by the sprinkling of blood on the high priest and on the altar. In Leviticus 16, if you remember, the blood of the bulls put on the high priest first before he can enter and sprinkle the blood on the altar. The time of Reformation is referring to the coming of Christ and the accomplishment of this work. So look at Hebrews 9 and verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the sprinkling baptisms of the Old Testament cleanse the body for worship, how much more will the sprinkling of Christ's blood purify you? In fact, in the Mosaic Covenant, it was put into effect 
with the sprinkling of blood upon the altar and upon the people. So also the new covenant, which is able to save to the uttermost with this once-for-all sacrifice, was affected by Christ's blood with which we're washed clean. Thus we read what we do in Hebrews 10.22. So look at Hebrews 10 and verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The sprinkling of blood was how the cleansing happened on the Day of Atonement. The sprinkling of blood was how the Old Covenant was inaugurated. Further, the sprinkling of Christ's blood in the heavenly holy of holies is how we are baptized, cleansed, washed. It was the sprinkling of Christ's blood that cleansed our hearts. Thus, the sprinkling of water is obviously a sign that visually points to all of that glorious reality. And the Old Testament and New Testament both use baptism, that word, in reference to sprinkling for cleansing. Thus, it could be that baptism is most appropriately done through sprinkling. Could be. So who's right? Was it immersion? Was it pouring out of water? Did they go in a river and have somebody sprinkle water on them? Which one happened? I am not sure. I'm happy with any of these modes for baptism. I know that really probably rattles your cage. I don't know. This is why our elders stand with the Westminster Divines when they wrote in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, paragraph 3, dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. In other words, we're not going to have a fit about any of these three because baptism is used with regard to all of these three modes, and baptism, as it's being used with regard to all these three modes, also is being used in every one of those contexts, pointing to glorious new covenant realities in Christ. The washing away of our sin, the being united to Christ in his death and resurrection, the having our consciences sprinkled clean, the having the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. Like there's not a shortage of great imagery in any of these tied to the biblical text and what and how the word baptism is regularly being used. So here's what I want to get back to and sort of end with. The Reformed Protestants didn't care whether you baptized via immersion or sprinkling or pouring just so that you baptized with water just so that you did that in the triune name and that people believed the promises that were being given in baptism. That was their concern. And I think that's the right place to place your concern. Are you being baptized with water in the triune name, and are you, in fact, believing the promises that are being given to you in the sign of baptism? That's what we're largely concerned with. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the kindness that you have shown us in your son, the fact that we have consciences, hearts that are sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ that we are washed, cleansed of our sins, forgiven, that we are in covenant with Christ by his blood, applied to us by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us,
so that we have new life in Christ, so that we're united to him in his death and resurrection. So the old is gone and the new has come. We give thanks for all these glorious realities that baptism points to, and we pray that our hearts and minds would be set aright upon Christ and all the benefits that we have in him that we would be focused there and constantly rejoicing in him, thankful for this sacrament that he's given to the church. Not so that we rejoice ultimately in the sacrament itself, but so that we rejoice in the Christ and the work he accomplished to which it points. In Jesus' name, amen.